This sermon is brought to you by Shatter State Chi Alpha. As you listen, we hope that you enjoy it and that it helps you in your walk. Please visit our website in the information below and drop us a message. We would love to hear from you. Father, I thank you for this night. I thank you, Father, for um, the mercy that you have on us, um, for your love for us. Father, I thank you that uh, for the mercy you have on the words that... Uh, that you speak through anyone who stands up here, Lord, because you know we need it. Father, um, I pray that as as uh, we read your word and as we study your scripture, Father, that we will be changed. And that not a one of us will leave this room without some sort of conviction of who you are and, and um, what you want from our lives, Lord, and what you've done for us. And Father, that... Uh, people's lives would be changed. I just thank you again, Father, for who you are, and pray these things in your name. Amen. Alrighty. So originally, um, well, and I haven't strayed too far from this path of thought, but Tanner left it um, last week, and actually Jason the week before, on kind of the note of uh, stability, and uh, where to find it. And how to seek it out, and some, and why we have it, why we're instable, instable at times even. And so I studied this and studied this, and I just, <laughs> you know, I couldn't make it make sense to me in in what I was looking up in the scriptures. I had notes upon pages upon pages of notes that just, <laughs> it just confounded me. I was like, what am I, what am I even saying here? And it, God revealed to me that really the pinnacle of stability in our lives is peace. If we have reached ultimate stability, then we have a level of peace. We have to, because that's what stability brings. I wanted to break it down in what I was originally thinking, and I'm going to kind of try to stick with this, but anyway, originally I wanted to break it down into two different um, groups of people. The wicked and those who are saved, the righteous. And kind of go along the lines of thought of why do the wicked not have peace? Why do they not have the stability that uh, it seems that the righteous have? And then as far as the righteous, why do sometimes we even struggle with stability and struggle with peace? And God kept drawing me back to Isaiah 57. I couldn't, I couldn't get away from it. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna start in and read. Um, this could be a really short sermon, uh, but let's go. It says Isaiah 57 it says the righteous perish, and no man layeth it to heart. And sorry, I do read the King James, so it sounds funny, and it gives me a lisp. And merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. He shall enter into peace, and he shall rest in the, and they shall rest in their beds, each one awaking in his uprightness, walking in his uprightness. But draw hither near, ye sons of sorceress, the seed of the adulterer and the whore, against whom ye sport yourselves. Against whom do you sport yourselves? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and draw out the tongue? Are ye not children of transgression, a seed of falsehood? And right away, we kind of come to our first 
issue with the wicked finding peace and stability. The what they seek after in life and the things that they prostitute themselves out to, as the scriptures say, and they strive for and lust after are false. They have no basis in reality. They are sure enough real, I mean, like prosperity, wealth, uh, posterity, uh, friends, uh, a good name in life, uh, achievements and goals. These are sure enough things that are tangible for us to touch and, and see and feel. But in all honesty, the truth of God, when it comes in to our lives or into the lives of these people that seek this, all these things will prove to be very, very much dust and are chasing after the wind. Vanity. God calls it vanity. Solomon says many times it's vanity. Vanity means it has no value. It means that it is worth nothing at all. And when he says that, it means that it is worth nothing at all to further us into any kind of saving grace or salvation. And believe me, the people, I hate to say the people, it sounds like I'm just pointing a finger, but I'm going to say it that way just for the sake of argument, I guess. But people who seek after these things, I lost my train of thought, sorry. <laughs> um, well, anyway, they'll find themselves wanting on the day when Christ returns. And they're seeking after, sorry, I re just regained it. <laughs> they're seeking after something to justify their life. They are seeking after a form of salvation, something to redeem the time they have on this earth. Anything. And the worst thing about it is, is the truth has been with them all along, and they've exchanged that truth for a lie. They've decided that the truth of God wasn't enough for them, and it didn't suit their needs and their lusts. I'll continue on. It says, inflaming yourselves with idols under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks, among the smooth stones of the stream is thy portion. They, they are thy lot. Even to them hast thou poured out a drink offering. Thou hast offered a meat offering. Should I receive comfort in these? Upon a lofty and high mountain thou hast set thy bed. Even thither, thither <laughs> wentest thou up to offer sacrifice. Behind the doors also and the post hast thou set up thy remembrance. For thou hast discovered thyself to another than me, and art gone up. Thou hast enlarged thy bed and made thee a covenant with them that lovest their bed. With them thou lovest their bed where thou sawest it. And thou wentest to the king with ointment and didst increase thy perfume and didst send thy messengers afar off and debase thyself even unto hell. In order to attain this false salvation, they would go to any measure. They even gave themselves or debased themselves unto hell. And it says, Thou art wearied in the greatness of thy way, and thou still saidest not, There is no hope. You have found life in thy hand, therefore thou wast not grieved. They actually found a sense, of, a sense of salvation in this. They found the life that they were looking for in this. They found a little bit of, of something to hope in, in these things that they were seeking after. And so, rather than when they came to this, this 
point where they were wearied by chasing after this and just seeking after these fleeting, vain things that are dust in the wind, that are chasing after the wind, as Solomon says. Rather than saying, oh, there's no hope in this, I just give up. They found this little glimmer of hope, and then they held on to it and continued on. I will declare thy righteousness. Sorry, I skipped a little bit. And of whom hast thou been afraid or feared that thou hast lied and hast not remembered me nor laid it to heart? Have I not held my peace even of old and thou fearest me not? I will declare thy righteousness. And this is that righteousness that we're talking about, this righteousness that they found in whatever these material things that they were going after, these idols, whatever this righteousness has given them. And God says, I will declare thy righteousness and thy works, for they shall not profit thee. And... <laughs> As I read this, I couldn't help but think, you know, there's one thing we all face. In the beginning, it says, in the beginning of this uh, chapter, it says, The righteous perish, and no man layeth it to heart. The merciful men are, are taken away, none considering that the righteous are taken away from the evil to come. He shall enter into peace. He shall rest, they shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. The righteous man who's truly found righteousness, who's truly found that Christ is the source of righteousness, the one thing that is eternal, when he dies and when he leaves this earth, his peace is always with him. And even while he's on this earth, his peace is with him. Because his substance, what, his, what he is made of in his heart, the very thing that is who he is, which is Christ, the grave has no hold over. But this isn't so with the wicked, when they, with the evil man who seeks after the idols and the lies of this world. There's no rest in this life for him. There's no peace in this life. Because everything in this life and all his righteousness and all that he's, he's um, held up and looked up to and that's built him up depends on the sun rising the next day for him. And I guarantee you there will come a day when that sun won't rise. Whereas death for the righteous man was a relief and a release, and he entered into his peace, death for the wicked man is a fearsome, fearsome thing. Because he knows that all of who he is, his substance, what makes him up, the very being of his person, will be consumed along with his flesh in the grave. There will be no remembrance of the wicked man. I'm going to go to Psalms. I wasn't going to go to Psalms, but now a verse comes to mind. One of, of course, it's my, one of my favorites, so no wonder I remember it. It says, Blessed is the man that walketh, walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he doth meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth its fruit in its season. His leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like chaff, which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the, in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly perish, shall perish. 
So now I guess we know kind of why the ungodly and the evil and the unrighteous don't have peace. And sometimes their life is filled with instability. So that brought the question, why do the righteous sometimes struggle with instability, with uh, doubt and fear? Um, several things came to mind. But one in particular is humility. In, in uh, the chapter just before this one in Isaiah, so Isaiah 56, it says, Thus saith the Lord, Keep ye judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son of man that layeth hold on it, and keepeth, keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. Neither let the son of a stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me and take hold of my covenant, even unto them will I give mine house, and within my walls a place and a name better than the sons and daughters, sons and of daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of strangers that join themselves to the Lord to serve him and who love the name of the Lord to be his servants, every one that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my name and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. For mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. The Lord God, which gathered the outcast of Israel, saith, Yet I will gather others to him besides those that are gathered unto him. To keep the Sabbath and keep from polluting it. We don't want to bring... Let me, let me start a little different way. Grace and mercy are what have saved us. Essentially, as a Christian and as a believer, we've entered, entered the Sabbath of God. We've entered into his rest. Through grace and through believing that what God did for us was completely finished on the cross. So, so often we want to control things in life, and when things get out of hand, we lose the sense of peace. And we start thinking, well... I don't think God knows what he's doing. <laughs> and we say, God, just step back and let me handle it. I, I can get this. I know what needs to be done. That's a work. That's seeking that salvation that we're already in. That's going back to our works again. God, let me handle it. I know what I'm doing. This is scaring me. I need to do this. That's polluting the Sabbath. You're bringing things into it that aren't meant to be there. Your works aren't meant to be in salvation. Now, don't get me wrong. Faith without works is dead, but the works come from God and come from Christ. So when you step into salvation and you start wavering, don't. Don't turn on to your, to the, uh, or turn back to your own deeds and, and what you can do to bring yourself out of it. 
You're bringing something into the salvation, into the relationship with Christ that's not supposed to be there. It is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Leave your works at the door. Rest, truly rest in God's salvation. That's the thing. This is why the righteous have the rest when they die, because they haven't anything else to bring with them. There's no worldly pollution that they brought with them. There's no, none of their works, none of their, I can do this, or <laughs> I've said the right prayer, or I've fasted for you so many times a day, or done this, or I need to straighten the situation out. It's constant, constant falling on our knees before God and realizing that he is the complete source and he has completed everything we need for salvation. There is nothing left to be done. This is why the righteous have peace, even in death, because Christ has defeated that as well. Nothing we have done has defeated death. There's one more uh, verse I kind of want to look at that uh, it's in Psalm 51 that kind of just drives this point home a little bit. And I always kind of went back to it because it's another one of my favorite verses. But I can't help but see that uh, a lot of the things that we struggle with and that we deal with and the things that waver our faith and cause us to stagger sometimes when, when, when times get hard, or even, even when times are good, sometimes we just lose sight of God. And there's a constant theme throughout the Bible that I've just noticed that just really, really drives home the kind of the issue behind this and its brokenness. Coming to the absolute end of ourselves and just stop. Stop bringing things into God's kingdom that don't belong. I will just start from the top and just read through it. It's only 19 verses. <clears throat> it's a psalm of uh, David. When Nathan the prophet came to him after, of course, uh, his thing was Bathsheba, he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. And even then, even of course, even in the first verse, he, he starts off with mercy. And mercy is a thing that we don't earn or deserve. That's the definition of mercy. <laughs> As a matter of fact, the opposite of that or what we is not getting what we do deserve. Um, David did a heinous thing. And we all do heinous things. And rightfully, David probably should have had the kingdom stripped from him. But God had made a promise to David, and God fulfilled that promise. God was the keeper of the promise, and it didn't depend on David. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and clear when thou, when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden parts thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Uh, that purge me with hyssop is actually, I don't know if many of you know, hyssop was uh, an herb, a spicy herb that uh, 
back in the days of the Passover, in the actual Passover, when the angel of death passed over Egypt and took all the firstborn, hyssop was what they would use to spread the blood of the lamb across the doorposts of their house to show that they were property of God, pretty much. So there's quite a bit of uh, imagery there. It's kind of a it's a really neat neat passage, and I encourage you to read it. Anyway, um, make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide my face from my thy face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, for thou, O God, my salvation, and for thou, O God, thou, God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. And that's the verse I was kind of wanting to get to. Scriptures also say that God is near to the brokenhearted. And I read uh, a few verses back about God and his ways and his thoughts. He says, my ways are not your ways, and, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. And it said, as a matter of fact, my thoughts are so high above yours, and my ways are so high above yours. They're not even on the same level. We think, as men, we, have, we just want to bring something. We want to bring something. It's, it's so important to us that there's some value in what we do. And the ironic thing about it is everything of value has already been done through Christ. And what we do is only has value when it's done for Christ. But here's the neat thing about it. Because though the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit, he continues on. It says, do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion and build the walls of Jerusalem. Then thou shalt be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they, shall they offer bullocks upon thy altar. Those offerings that we make to God, when we come before him, huh, for instance, I'll just take for instance tonight, for me. I feel, or struggle with the feeling, <laughs> I'll say that much, Sometimes coming up here is a kind of a saving grace of mine that I can speak uh, God's word for him. And, you know, the thing of it is, is that if I come before him with a broken and contrite heart, it doesn't matter what I bring. But when I come before him with a broken and contrite heart, the, the sacrifice of coming up here to speak for God is acceptable to him. If I come up here and just speak it because I'm proud to be up here and I'm just a good speaker, which I'm not, but if I come up here with that attitude, then that is not acceptable. That's me trying to pollute the Sabbath, trying to bring something into the relationship with Christ that shouldn't be there. That's me not acknowledging that Christ has done everything already. There's nothing left for me to do. 
That's me idolizing myself. But the funny thing is, I can still come up here and still share God's word with you with a broken and contrite spirit. And that's for God to judge. But if, if that's so, if I come up here and speak the word of God with a broken and contrite heart, then that is a sacrifice that's acceptable to him. Now I can offer that sacrifice to him. Now it's okay because I know that God's truth and God's word don't rest on what I say or what I do. God's truth and God's word rest on him. And it will come through me by him if he wills it. And if he wills it, he'll shut me up and send me packing. Either way, it is right for God to do so. So this applies to all of us. We all have something to bring. God, is, God has given us all talents, skills, and abilities, and then he gives us more gifts as Christians. But we're not here like David wanted to build the temple for, Christ, for God. David says, you know, here I am in a palace of cedar, and God, you're still in a tent. Your you're art still dwelling in the shabby old tent that we've been dragging around with us for who knows how many years. And, God, and David says, I need to build you this house. I need to build you a, a temple. And God says, who are you to build me a temple? You're not going to build me a temple. You don't offer me favors. You're not going to do a thing for me. I will do this for you. And God turns it on him and says, I will, I will extend your kingdom. I will make your kingdom an everlasting kingdom. God is the one who provides God is the one who gives good things. We should simply be thankful and humble and come into the presence of God and say, Father, thank you for salvation. Thank you that I don't have to be afraid of the same death that the heathen and the wicked and the evil are afraid of. Father, you've done it all. There's nothing left. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you that you are so merciful to all of us. I thank you for, for the work you've done, Father. Lord, you are glorious, and help us to enter into your rest. Help us to rest from our works. To have peace with you, Father. Father, even in the days when we fall short and we just sin, the same rule applies. There was nothing we were bringing to the table before, and there's nothing we can take from it. So, Father, even in our sin, your mercy is still there, and we can still have peace, and we can still turn to you, ask for your forgiveness, knowing that your word says that if you ask and confess your sins before me, you are faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Father, to you be the glory forever. Amen.